Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child through the method of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Mecki Losano. Today, we begin season four of the podcast. We want to thank all of you for journeying with us as we learn more about God and the child and this special relationship that they have. Today, we have Dr. Donald Wallenfang joining us on the podcast to talk about the metaphysical child. And this is a term that Sophia Cavalletti used at the end of chapter one of the religious potential of the child. We also heard about it a little bit from Rebecca Reutsevich in our very first full episode, The God and the Child. Um, she spoke about it, the metaphysical child, a little bit there as well. So Donnie is going to lift up for us just what is metaphysics, as well as what does metaphysics mean for the child, for the adult, and as well as the prepared environment. I hope you enjoy. Donnie, welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. Thanks so much, Carrie. What a great gift to be with you. Well, Donnie, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so my name is Donnie Wallenfang, born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and grew up in Benton Harbor in St. Joseph, Michigan. I'm married to Megan, who is a CGS formation leader, and we have six children ages 22 down to eight, one daughter who's the oldest and five sons. Hmm. And I've been involved in CGS for the past 23 years uh, as a catechist in levels one, two, and three. But I would describe myself primarily as a level three catechist. Uh, and I received a doctorate in theology from Loyola University, Chicago in 2011 and I'm currently a professor of theology and philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. And my wife, Megan, and I are also both third order Carmelites. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we had Megan on the podcast about a year ago. We talked about merciful parenting, and that was one of my favorite episodes. I really enjoyed that episode with her. So you are definitely in good right. company. <laughs> right. I learned so much for her, uh, her and Aaron in that episode as well. I like to refer back to it with her as we continue to try to parent our own children with great mercy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in all your studies within Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, but also in your more formal studies at university, you found this connection between catechesis and what you were studying. That's right. There's such a connection between contemplative prayer, Carmelite spirituality, the child, the studies I was doing in philosophy and metaphysics and phenomenology. So I'm so excited to get to help bring these connections together in this episode. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about it, too. I'm really excited. So how about we start with just defining what is metaphysics, because that's a term that most people are not familiar with. Definitely. So we see this term metaphysics show up in Sophia's writings. She talks about the metaphysical exigence of the child, and she talks about this in chapters one of both RPC1 and RPC2. Uh, in RPC 1, Chapter 1, God and the Child, RPC 2, Chapter 1, 
the questions of the child, uh, such as the silent question of the child is, what is life? And so we wonder, what does Sophia mean by this metaphysical exigence of the child, or she says elsewhere, this ontological need of the child? Metaphysics, as a word, uh, can be broken down into the first part, meta, meaning behind or beyond, and physics is comes from a Greek word for nature. So it's a method of philosophy that goes back to ancient Greek philosophy, especially to Aristotle, who lived about 300 years before the time of Jesus. And it's a method that he developed that inquires into what is most essential in the world of being and beings. What is most necessary and universal? And Aristotle, one of his works is called the metaphysics, even though he didn't name it that. It was termed that by an editor of his works about 100 years after he wrote it. And uh, they used the Greek phrase, ta metatafusika, the work after the physics. So Aristotle had written a work called the physics, which was all about the world of natural science, but then another work, which would be more advanced about this necessary world that is the condition of possibility for the world of nature. And so it was like warning the student of Aristotle, if you want to study the metaphysics, you should study the physics first. And one last thing about Aristotle was his school of philosophy was known as the peripatetics from a Greek word that means walking up and down, walking around, walking from place to place. So Aristotle was known to do this philosophy of metaphysics while walking and talking with his students, with his disciples. So there's a real strong connection here when we think of Maria Montessori and the absorbent mind of the child and the necessary connection between intellectual development and bodily movement, how these go hand in hand. So when Sophia is using the language of metaphysics, all of this is really in the background, going back uh, to Aristotle and then the scholastic medieval philosophical tradition with people like Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, who really took this up to ask the question, what is being? It's such a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so am I describing it correctly when I say that metaphysics is the ability to you see the physics, you see the physical that's right in front of you, but able to surpass it to something deeper underneath. That's right. Yeah. And that's why the child is the premier metaphysician, the one who best asks the question, why? And when we ask the question, why? We're penetrating beneath the surface of things, that movement to what is transcendent and the relationship between what is close and also what transcends this material world of nature. Mm. That's so fascinating what you were lifting up about the connection between Aristotle and doing contemplating things in a metaphysical way while walking with his students and the connection between Montessori and the, the body and mind and how the body needs to move, needs to be doing the work of the hands as we deepen our minds, as we go deeper in a mental way as well. And then the connection of what we do as well in Good Shepherd. So we have the physical, like 
the parables are the easiest ones to think of with this. So like the physical, the mustard seed, but then we actually are touching it. We are actually looking at it and feeling it. And the deeper that goes with the physical aspect of the doing, the work that we are physically doing. That's neat that there's that connection of the physical with the mental that you're lifting up there. Right, definitely. And in in episode two of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, uh, you are hosting Rebecca Roysevich and uh, uh, an episode titled God and the Child. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, uh, I remember Rebecca talking about how children are simultaneously attuned to the sensorial and the transcendent, that they're both alive in their senses and in their spirit. They behold both the visible order of things and the invisible order of things, like you're saying. And and in Cavaletti in RPC one chapter one says that the child delights in and is deeply satisfied by contact with God. So the little child, we especially observe this in level one, has a marvelous unity within of the physical reality and the transcendent reality, and that children are able to move fluidly between the natural and the supernatural. Right. There's no really conscious effort involved in this movement for the child. It's innate. It's right. a movement, Cavaletti says in RPC2, from the lesser to the more. Right. Right. It's so easy for them to have a foot in both worlds. Like they can see the good shepherd as a shepherd, but they can also at the exact same time understand that the good shepherd is Jesus, that there is a deeper level to what the words are speaking there, that metaphysics of just being able to be in both of those worlds. And I've had the privilege of doing adult meditations for sacrament preparation many times. And it's interesting because the adults really do have a harder time with this. Like I'm thinking right now about the parable of the prodigal son, which in Good Shepherd we call the forgiving father. It is Mm -hmm. very hard for adults to see past the top layer of the, the father maybe being too nice to the son is how so many parents have responded to that parable whenever we're sitting and just pondering with it. they It's harder for them to step into the other world, into the other side, into that deeper nature of this parable to see the mercy that God is trying to convey through the parable. But the child can sit in both worlds so easily. And mm-hmm. we just kind of lose it as we get older. But you're right, that youngest child, that level one child, you see it the easiest with them. Yeah. Yeah, it's this metaphysical intuition that there must be this perfect love, this complete mercy that makes this universe possible. And it's like the child recognized this, understands this, yearns for this leans into it and leads us adults in that encounter with this transcendent perfection of love and being and mercy that makes everything else possible. Right. Right. They accept it so freely. And same thing with the mystery of life and death as well. Yes, I think we can think about this going back to Montessori's triangular relationship that she talks about in her London lectures where we have the child positioned as the apex, the due north, mm-hmm. and then the adults and the environment uh, to accompany the child and to follow the child in 
her contemplative way of life. So facing the mystery of life and death, the child doesn't shy away from this, but ponders what's going on here in the level one presentation where this mystery is uh, referenced to uh, the plant and the development of the plant uh, all the way into the full grain of, of wheat uh, with the biblical passage, as Jesus says, unless the grain of wheat you know, sown into the ground and dies, it remains only a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces a rich abundance, a rich harvest. And so the child can face death squarely in as much as she has this confident hope that death is overcome by life. The child knows intuitively that in the beginning is not death, but life. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in the end, life. It makes no sense metaphysically to say that in the beginning is death, because if that were the case, there would be nothing. <laughs> but the fact that there's something rather than nothing means that always there is something. And there's a metaphysical phrase in Latin, bonum est divisivum sui, which means goodness is diffusive of itself. So if we experience goodness in this life, it means it has a source. And those who, of us who, by God's grace, are humble enough to realize this is not ourselves. It comes from a transcendent source that gave us being in the first place and that has the power to resurrect our being even though we die. And it's like the child is already in tune with this metaphysical exigence of the will to live. Even the the child in the womb and the infant child, how Montessori talks about the child develops on her own, there's something in her that Aristotle calls the entelechy, this movement toward the goal and the perfection of the being, the perfection of the organism. And the blueprint is already there. The metaphysical architecture is already there in the, the soul, in the form of the, the human being that unfolds and expresses itself in and through the body. And the child does this so naturally, as I said before, without any real deliberate conscious effort. It's just how they are. It's how how children live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so facing the mystery of, of life and death, the child leads us as a witness to the power of resurrection. Mm. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Donnie, earlier you were speaking about a triangular relationship that Montessori brought up of the child, the adult, the environment. Could you speak into what does metaphysics mean for each one of those? Yeah, so I think when we ask about metaphysics and how Sophia Cavaletti is using the term in her work, it's helpful to think about what does metaphysics have to do with the child? What does metaphysics have to do with the environment? What does it have to do with the adult, how does metaphysics understand these three components of the triangular relationship better by letting the child lead us in this newly acquired understanding? 
So in RPC1, at the very end, Cavaletti says that there is no being more metaphysical than the child. The child is metaphysician par excellence. The child is an innate investigator. Everything she does contributes to the revelation of being for her. Mm -hmm. We think of the infant child who gropes with their arms and legs and wants to grasp on to different objects, wants to touch and explore the local environment, puts everything to the lips and mouth. What is this thing? And, and tries to investigate everything and take everything in. The child does this quite naturally. And so the child reveals to the adult the meaning of metaphysics in the flesh hmm. because it's the child who best asks why. A why that opens the heart toward truth in all the roundness of its mystery. And then we have also the components of the adult in the environment. And we learn from Sophia that the adult is there to serve the child, the adult, him or herself, as a useless, unprofitable servant. And she says that poverty is the primary virtue of the catechist. Poverty is the primary virtue that the adult is serving the child by first preparing this environment of encounter for the child to encounter the mysteries of faith. And so we might wonder about what does metaphysics teach us about the environment? We think about Jesus, the itinerant rabbi, Jesus called the great physician, and we could also say the great metaphysician. We can think of him as a peripatetic rabbi, that is, a rabbi who walks and talks, mm -hmm. teaches through movement, teaches in and through leading his disciples into new uncharted environments and territories, even a storm on a sea, and he has something to teach them there. Mm. He teaches on the move because Jesus knows full well, the creator of movement, that movement is integral to teaching and learning and how necessary it is for the disciples to be immersed in diverse environments of encounter. Again, we're reminded of Montessori's principle of what could be called a kinesthetic combination of intellectual work and bodily movement that she especially discusses in The Absorbent Mind. So if we take note of Jesus as the master catechist, we see how he invites his children to ask why with him, to wonder and wander with him. First of all, as a child himself that we just celebrated in uh, the Christmas mysteries, Jesus invites us to ask why with him as the infant Christ. And as he grows and develops in his humanity, Jesus teaches us through the parables, as you were talking about earlier, how he teaches us about the mystery of life and death. Sophia Cavaletti in RPC1 talks about the power of the sign and how Jesus uses these powerful signs within his parables, this parabolic sign through which the material world acquires a kind of transparency and the transcendent world acquires a kind of tangibility. 
And in level one, we think of the kingdom parables, three about growth and transformation, the mustard seed, the yeast, the growing seed, and then two about value, the precious pearl and the hidden treasure. And through these parables, Jesus teaches us that both we and the kingdom of God are valuable. Both we and the kingdom of God are growing and transforming. So the triangular relationship leads us to better understand ourselves as adults in and through preparing this environment for the encounter of the child and the good shepherd. I love that. I love the way that you were talking about how Jesus taught with movement, with walking with his apostles and um, through the physical world. That's so similar to what we do as well in the atrium. I love that. Yeah, it's so amazing when Jesus invites us into an environment of lack, it gives him something to fill. It gives God something to do. And this is why the atrium environment as as designed, you know, going back to Montessori's uh, vision and Cavaletti building on this within Christian faith formation, the environment itself is is one of poverty and that's intentional. So that the poverty of the environment is a springboard into this encounter with the transcendence of God. The environment isn't full of a bunch of loud sounds and lights flashing up, but it's a very quiet, still, contemplative environment that the child so yearns for, to be enveloped by silence, to be enveloped by the sacramental mysteries of the faith, and to, and to let the tangibility of the material lead them into a deeply spiritual encounter with our spiritual God. Hmm. So you're lifting up that the essentiality of an environment allows for greater transcend, allows for greater metaphysical nature of being able to transcend from the physical to the invisible. That that yes. type of environment mm-hmm. is what's conducive to that. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, most yeah, most definitely. Yeah, the, it gives the child something to do also. It's like not everything is being done for the child, but the materials await the child's hands, the child's eyes, the unity of perception that the child showcases so much more intensely than the adult. And this is why it's such a privilege for us adult catechists to observe the children in the atrium environment. I mean, I'm just... I'm brought to, to tears, mm. to trembling when I observe children in the environment because they teach me better how to contemplate the things they say, the pictures they draw, the songs they sing, how they move in the environment. It's just an entrance into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. If we simply utter the Marian fiat, let it be done unto me according to your word, O Lord. Mm. And let me, as the, as the prophet Isaiah says, be led by the child in this peaceable kingdom. Because the child's heart is so integral. The child's heart is a testimony to the shalom of Christ, the peace of Christ. And Sophia, in the book Way of Holy Joy, uh, and Patricia Coulter gets at this in her translator's note too, she brings together those Hebrew words of shalom and shalem. Shalom meaning peace and shalem meaning integrality, lacking nothing essential, 
wholeness. And this is a wholeness that only God can supply. We think of the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one bringing good news, bearing glad tidings, proclaiming to Zion, your God is king, bringing this peace, this shalom of God. And whose feet are beautiful? Those of the child, mm. those discalced, shoeless feet <laughs> that walk the way of mystery. And for us adults to bear our feet also with the children as they play on the cool green grass, as they go about the atrium in search of the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, and all the saturating mystery of God that he created us to receive. There's such great examples for us of true spirituality, true true yeah. discipleship. Yes, no question about it. And as adults, as Sophia teaches us, we have to be so careful as catechists to count our words. As Maria Montessori gave us a rule for her teachers, the words of Dante in Italian, le parole tue sian conte, let your words be counted so that we don't clutter up the child's encounter with this mystery with, with our own words. We need to let the sacramentality of the prepared environment, the materials, do the talking, do the expression. Uh, and so adult is this privileged witness to the contemplative epiphany of the child. The adult has the privilege to ask why with the child and to give to the child what they're asking for and no more. To allow the child room for self-discovery and that peripatetic freedom of movement. The child too has the privilege of wandering alongside the child. As Sophia says in RPC1, for catechesis to be a living event for the child, the catechist should know the child's exigencies, those metaphysical yearnings for transcendence, and the aspect of God that most corresponds to those exigencies, those um, spiritual needs of the child. Mm. So it's so wonderful to ask why with the child and to pursue with abandonment the answer that because that is the original cause of all of our being in life, namely God. And to let the materials manifest in the prepared environment uh, do this work of encounter rather than the verbal eloquence of the adults. <laughs> so altogether, this would allow us to overcome what Sophia calls the present crisis in our culture, the crisis of incarnation, in which she says it is not so much God who is denied, but Christ, the incarnate word, who is rejected. So the materials in the atrium, in this prepared environment, allow children to encounter the incarnate word through the sacramentality of his living meaning. Mm. And as the adults, when we are not counting our words, when we are not creating essentiality, we are getting in the way of that incarnation within the child. That's powerful. Right, right. There, there takes a lot of trust that we have to have as the adults that it, we do not have to 
have control over this. There's just a lot of trust right. in God and also in the capacities of the child. So they truly are capable of this metaphysical nature. They are truly capable of seeing beyond and we don't have to always force it. So there's there's a lot right. of trust that has to come with within that. Yeah, so much trust as Sophia refers to St. Augustine saying, Numquam posum docere, I can never teach. Because we trust in Christ, the inner teacher at work in the child, at work in ourselves. And we simply facilitate that encounter. So for one of the greatest teachers of the history of Christian theology, St. Augustine, uh, to say, I can never teach. We have to learn from that. And, And Sophia definitely takes that to heart. And as you say, there's so much trust involved, but when trust is a, a fundamental feature of catechesis, we're no, we know we're on the right track. Yes, I agree. I completely agree with that. And whenever mm-hmm. someone is having difficulties, I have found in my experience that it always tends to come back to either a um, disruption in the environment or a disruption in the adult. I think sometimes we immediately assume that there's something wrong within the child but it's usually the other two parts of the triangle. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, yeah. I have found it takes a lot of prayer for me to kind of come back to more an essential place within myself um, so that I'm not imposing and getting in the way of that incarnation that you were talking about, that I can trust that this child and trust that the Holy Spirit has got it. So it, it takes a lot of prayer. Yeah. And that's why the triangular relationship is such a helpful diagnostic tool to troubleshoot what's going on in the environment if things don't seem to be connecting for the child. And the first working assumption is the problem, as you said, is not the child, but it's something with the adult or the environment. Oftentimes the environment is so interesting as I've uh, served as a catechist in the atrium, how the children find those materials so quickly that aren't ready to be presented, they're not ready to go. And I, I think, oh, I should have taken that off the shelf um, beforehand because it's causing a disorientation. And what we aim at is is a, the most ideal orientation for the child as possible in the environment. And that means it has to pre- be prepared as well as possible. Mm. And the catechist has to be prepared as well as possible to, to present all of the, the materials there and then to get out of the way and let, let the child work with them mm-hmm. as the, the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot that I'm going to take away from this conversation, but something that I'm going to ponder a lot more is this idea of Jesus teaching through movement and using the physical world to teach and um, or to, to sit with the theology that he's trying to convey. Just this idea of essentiality and the prepared environment and the prepared adult and using that physical environment, that essential physical environment, but even beyond the atrium. For sure. Yeah, we can trust Jesus, the Good Shepherd, the Prince of Peace, as Montessori and Cavaletti talk about this education for peace. Mm -hmm. And what better educator than the Prince of Peace within the interior hiddenness of the heart of the child. Hmm. 
Well, Donnie, is there anything else that you want to lift up before we finish today? So many things, but so little time. <laughs> <laughs> so many good things uh, to ponder, but I suppose for now I'll just uh, count my words and, and hopefully our conversation points back to the great insights of uh, Montessori and, and Cavaletti and Adele Costa Gnocchi, who says God and the child get along well together. And mm-hmm. we can trust that, that too. It's not something that we have to invent for the child to get along well with God, but um, God has placed it within the heart of the child to get along well together. And we as adults simply need to continue to observe, take note of the child of this walking with God all the way to the resurrected life. Right. Following the child to God. Yeah. They will lead us. The children will lead us. Thank you, Donnie. I really appreciate you. My great pleasure, Carrie. So great to be a part of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast. In our show notes, you're going to find links to a handful of books to help you dive into this very deep topic of the metaphysical child even deeper. So, of course, we have The Religious Potential of the Child by Sophia Cavaletti where she talks about it in chapter one, as well as the religious potential of the child too, for the six to 12 year old that she also talks about it in her chapter one. Donnie also mentioned the book Ways of Holy Joy. So you can find a link to that in our show notes. And he also has written a handful of his own books, including Metaphysics, A Basic Introduction in a Christian Key, as well as a few others that I am listing in our show notes, if you would like to check those out. I also put links in our show notes for you to be able to go back and listen to episode two with Rebecca Reutsevich on the God and the child in which she talks about the metaphysical child. I also put a link for episode 82, which has Donnie's wife, Megan Wallenfing, with Aaron Miller and I talking about merciful parenting. We are still accepting listener questions, so please feel free to check that out in our show notes. If you would like to ask a question about the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, go there. And we also have the audiobook of the third edition of The Religious Potential of the Child, read by Rebecca Reutsevich, that is now available on Audible. So go look in our show notes for more details for that. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. If you would like to know more about the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you would like to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for listening. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.